Well, we're back to um, a series which we started sometime before Christmas, then we had the Christmas time, and uh, a, a very different Sunday last Sunday. We're back into this series in 1 Peter now. We're calling it Compelled because we're looking at the implications of what happens when the compelling message of Jesus comes to a group of people. In this case, a group of people who lived in what is uh, modern-day Turkey. They lived during the Roman Empire, um, sometime, some years, after Jesus uh, had ministered, uh, died, risen again, returned to heaven, and uh, they are the result of the spreading of the message of the Bible and the growth of the gospel uh, throughout the known world at that time. And Peter, who was one of Jesus' apostles, uh, writes this first letter, 1 Peter, to this group of Christians. They were, in lots of ways, so wildly different to you and me uh, in so many ways, all sorts of ways they were different, not least things like communication. Uh, a letter would be written, it would be sent across to, uh, carried, literally carried, there was no postal service, somebody would literally be tasked with taking this message, taking it to the first church, and the first church would gather it together, they would read it, they'd share it, they'd then start to copy it and, and send the copies to other churches, and it spread throughout the area. So whereas we could write, if you were fairly quick in typing, a couple of hours you could probably type the letter of 1 Peter, you could then email in it, email in it, email it, and it could then be uh, in a thousand miles away and thousands of locations in a matter of moments. The world was very different in those days. It was a slow process. Yet at the same time, deep down at the core, then these people were probably just like you and me in so many other ways. Uh, the Roman calendar was different at that particular time, but they recognized the calendar. The cal Roman calendar originally had 304 days, then it was taken up to 354, 355. 304 days means that the seasons of the year actually start to change through the year. Over time, the Christmas event, or Christmas, that wouldn't happen, would it? Uh, winter time would eventually end up at the beginning of the year rather than the end of the year. Have you ever thought about the fact that our winter is always at the back end of the year in our northern hemisphere? That's because of the t way in which the calendar is structured. It was a different calendar at that time, but I guess in some ways they would reflect on the idea of a new year. Uh, they would reflect on the idea of another year past uh, on a birthday. They recognized birthdays, don't know what the celebrations were like, but they, in lots of ways, were just like you and me in this sense that they recognized and they understood the passing of time in relation to the life that we have. Our life is maybe we might have a very long blessed with a very long life or a relatively short life. But in relative terms, a short life or a long life, in, this, in the time uh, over the centuries, our lives are very, very, very brief, aren't they? Uh, and we recognize them, we mark them, we see time passing. Uh, we think about, at this time of year, we think about the idea that we're in a new year. And we think, well, wonder, I wonder what this new year is going to bring us. 
I wonder what this new year is going to result in. One of the things that we very quickly begin to realize, we think we've got control over it, and then over time, generally it works a bit like this, doesn't it? You're young and you think you've, you've got no control over your life, and then you get a bit older and you start to feel as if you've got all sorts of control, and then after a bit of time and you start to realize that you were stupid to think you ever had control anyway, and you've got actually very little control over our lives. Things just, it just hit us. Events in life just come out of the blue and they, they hit us and we respond to them. I guess that those first recipients of Peter's letter uh, reflected on life in the same kind of way. Here's the question. Uh, how are we going to live our lives? How are we going to choose to live our lives through this next 2015? How are we going to uh, deal with those various positive negative events which are going to happen. They're all going to happen. Good things, bad things, they're all going to happen. Uh, for many, many of us, I guess, the way that we respond to this is we say, well, when they happen, I will respond. I, I will kind of move and adjust according to the events that happen. I, I, I'll, I will, therefore, the, the outcome of that is that I will, therefore, be shaped in my life according to the events outside of me. When they happen, they impact me and I will respond. It's my life is all down, therefore, to those events outside of there. And Peter is writing to this particular group of Christians who are facing, there, there are rumblings in the empire they are facing the prospect of the reality of massive opposition for the fact that they believe in Jesus. It hasn't really hit yet, but it is clear that over time, then as the persecution of the, uh, the Roman Empire against Christianity washed through the empire, uh, there would be Christians at this point who would be hearing about things going on in different parts of the empire, and Peter is writing to them and is saying to them, essentially, how are you going to live when that happens? Now, we probably, in this country, uh, by God's blessing, at this particular point in our history, we are not, at this moment in time, on the receiving end of that kind of persecution, but we are still in the same way we are still uh, given the, the task of responding or alternatively having a different way of living. Look at what we... We're going to look at just two verses today. Verse 11 and 12 of our reading. He's writing to this group of Christians. He's written a whole series of stuff beforehand. If you haven't been able to keep up, go to the downloads. You can, you can get the downloads uh, and read the whole letter just get a flavor of the whole letter. But the first thing that he says is, dear friends, I urge you. And that, that's the, the starting point, isn't it? Uh, and I want to take verse 1, verse 11, and verse 12 in two ways. Verse 11 says, firstly, I urge you, I want you to think of your life, firstly, in an upward sense. That's the first point. 
think about the upward relationship. In other words, think about your relationship with the God who you love. In other words, the whole of your life should be shaped by that first relationship. The fact that you are in relationship with that God who is the eternal creator of the universe and therefore because he is eternal, everything that is so passing, every opposition which is so uh, short term is, is smaller than him. He is the eternal God and you have a relationship with that eternal God. So the first dimension is upward. The second dimension is outward. As a result of that upward relationship in verse 11, how will you therefore have a a living response outward to everybody around you? Let's have a look at what he says firstly in verse uh, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. First thing, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's a fascinating frame, fra- uh, phrase that he's using. We've already established as we've been looking at this that he's writing to believers in Jesus who are predominantly from a Jewish background and they have been spread around the empire and they have been, uh, they identify themselves uh, very clearly as Jews but they are also spread out away from their homeland, in all sorts of other places. And he's saying, firstly, think firstly that you are, in some sense, foreigners and exiles. But the twist that comes with that is do not think of yourselves as foreigners and exiles from your country land, uh, Israel, Jerusalem. Primarily, consider yourself as eternal foreigners and exiles, in the sense that your eternal home is where you are currently considered to be a foreigner from. You are exiled at this point from your homeland, which is that eternal home. That's the first thing that he's he's saying to them. Understand who you are. You are new citizens in a sense. You are a congregation of people who have a new identity and think first and foremost that your home is not immediately here. Your home is elsewhere. If we think about that, if we can take that on board, you know, that changes everything, doesn't it? If we think that our home is here and anything which is going to attack or undermine or destabilize home here, then we're really in trouble. We're really in trouble if that's the case. If our life is is based on security and well-being and provision in this life, in this environment, we have got a problem. And first off, he's saying, I just want to encourage you. (laughs) You are exiles and foreigners first and foremost. Your home is elsewhere. Your home is where your, home, your father is already dwelling. That's one of the things that Jesus said again and again as he explained to them what the implications were of being a believer in him. You have a new home. You have a new citizenship. Peter's saying you are foreigners and exiles. So, so in a sense, foreigners and exiles don't set your roots down. Don't 
expect absolute immediate security. One of the strange things that uh, God's people were told to do while they were, um, while they were traveling around uh, the wilderness in those 40 years was while they were foreigners and exiles, they were told not to, not to uh, eat, grape, eat, eat raisins and grapes. Well, that was because as soon as you have that aspiration of growing a vine uh, and seeing them kind of plant and grow and, and emerge and harvest, you've got to hang around for a long time. You've got to keep moving, essentially, is what God was saying to his people. And that reflects back now to you and me. If we, if we consider ourselves to be on the move, exiles and foreigners to this world, then suddenly we are freed and we are liberated. So the things that we think that we absolutely have to hold on to are not as anywhere near as securing as we thought they were. That is liberating. To be a foreigner in exile sounds destabilizing. It sounds a fearful thing, doesn't it? But if we know that our home is safe, then we are okay. So the first thing he says is, consider that now, and in that life, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That is such a power-packed verse. It is an amazingly deep, powerful verse that Peter is saying here. He's saying, I urge you to live your life not pursuing sinful desires. That is a massive statement. Because by nature, we pursue sinful desires. What is a sinful desire in that sense? Well, of course, it can be extreme sinful desires, or it can be passive sinful desires, all of which find their same root in this idea, self. It's, it's about me. And, that, and that's written through that whole idea of what it means to be uh, a sinful person. It's all about my own well-being. Security comes from desiring a particular outcome. Now, that can be really crass. I see her, I want her, it's all about me, and my response is to go out and get her, and the end result of the, of the night or the two nights is that she's forgotten, or he's forgotten. That is a sinful desire which is all about me finding satisfaction. It can equally be a sinful desire in exactly the same way, which is about, I've got to accumulate a security of financial provision or, or material possession. And, and that sinful pursuit, an absolute dedicated pursuit to make sure that I am safe. All of that is about me and my security, or me and mine, my security. Now, now, what he's saying is this. Now, listen, you have got to understand that that kind of desire wages war against your soul. The word, that you, the word in the Greek there is, uh, is psyche. It's, uh, it's a word which uh, relates to your 
You're very much in the whole of you. Your Your very being. Who you are as a person. Now, the first thing that we see is Jesus, is Jesus has already said, and Peter is reinforcing here, the value of your soul. You, have you ever considered that as an important feature to you? Have you ever thought that your soul is of unmeasurable value? More than anything, your soul is worth. Jesus said that. He said this, uh, for whoever wants to save their life, do you see how he's relating that to the whole being? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Why, why did Jesus use terms like that about the soul? Why did he equate the value of the soul as being so great that you can't bring anything to exchange for it? It's just very simple. It's exactly what we've been saying all along up to now, that the soul is the eternal dimension. It's the me. Yes, it will be reconstituted in a living body, but it's my personal me eternal dimension, the me that is me. How, 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 worth, how much worth does that carry? Jesus says, if you accumulate all of the wealth in the whole world, it's not worth the value of your soul. Why? Why? Because the whole worth of the whole world is still only temporary. Do you see that? You're trying to measure one thing against something else. One which is of eternal value because it has an eternal quality, an eternal dimension, and the other thing which is just temporary. There's so many disaster movies which show that kind of scene where somebody's weighing up what do I take in this final crisis? You know, the boat's sinking or, or the, they're on a desert island and you suddenly realize what's the value of, of rolls of money. It's, it's nothing. It's meaningless now. It's exactly the same with the value and wealth of this world. It, it's meaningless. And Peter is saying here, do you understand that you're, there is a conflict going on within you where your soul is on the one hand of huge value and your sinful desires on the other hand are waging war against that hugely valuable thing? Your self-centeredness, my self-centeredness, my desire to accumulate, my desire to, to gain temporary security or temporary experience is waging war against the eternal dimension of me. So the first thing we see, there is huge soul value. And secondly, we see there is soul conflict. And Peter makes it very clear. Look, 
he says. There is a mass of kind of depth to the Bible and to the teaching of Jesus, to this gospel message. There is masses of it that you can spend your whole life uncovering bit by bit by bit by bit. That's great. That's wonderful. But down at the kind of grassroots issue, aside of all of the theological uh, kind of discussions and debates, the simple message is this. There is a conflict going on and I urge you to live in this way. You can say, well, Doesn't the Bible talk about my soul being eternally secure? Yeah, absolutely it does, but just forget about that for now. Just just don't worry about that. That's kind of, you know, that's, that's further down the line. Just right now, there is a plain, simple demand on us where I urge you to get control of your sinful desires. It's straightforward, isn't it? At the beginning of 2015, I reckon we all need to hear that. I need to look in the mirror and say, Paul, get a grip of your sinful desires. I urge you, Peter says, get it under control. Because your soul is the issue at stake here. Your soul is where the conflict is rumbling. He actually says there, doesn't it? They wage war against your soul. They create this sense of discomfort and this sense of just no well-being, just no peace, no kind of calm. I'm in a bad place. I, I know that stuff is going on and I'm just not satisfied. I know that my relationship with God is not right. Why? Why, what's going on there? It's the, the war against your soul. It's the sinful desires which are warring against your peace in the knowledge of your relationship with God. So there's the first thing. Get to grips your upward dimension. Resolve that battle. I urge you. <laughs> I urge you. Because the Bible says I can urge you. Because Peter urges us all today. I urge you, get to grips with your sinful desires. When we've got that right, there is then an outward dimension. He goes on to say, right, upwards, get that resolved. Then, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us few things that we need to cover off here. Pagans is a really kind of interesting word to use there because as soon as we read pagans, we, th- we think of something very different. We think of a particular, uh, actually an emerging kind of idea of um, ideas of spiritual- spirituality which are related to historical ancient ideas. Uh, We've got to understand, firstly, that the word that is used there in the original is actually Gentiles. That's the word that's used. It's not pagans. We've translated it to be pagans. Why have we done that? Well, what, what 
what Peter is saying in the same way that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, where the same word Gentiles is translated as pagans, what he's saying is it's not about this kind of Jew-Gentile thing. You see the clever way in which that kind of shift is made? It's not about you being Jews and them being Gentiles. It's about, the, it's about being a believer in Jesus or being a not a believer in Jesus. Now, in the ancient world, uh, every one of us, every one of us would have been religious. We would have had religious associations. We would have had religious convictions. Every one of us. We're not like that in 21st century Britain. What we tend to have is either no religion or that religion or this religion, and in, in the case of, uh, of Christ Church, we are believers in Jesus, and therefore some would say we identify as have the religion of Christianity. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, everybody had a religion. Everybody believed in spirituality. Everybody believed in some notion of the gods. So what Peter is actually saying is the difference that he's trying to create is not people of religion and people of non-religion, but rather believers in Jesus and believers in everything else. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, now, as a result of getting the conflict inside right, do you see the conflict that was in verse 11? It was conflict between your sinful desires and your soul. Get, resolve that conflict, and as soon as you resolve that conflict, you will then create another conflict. The conflict moves from inside to outside. And the conflict is quite simply this in that world. It was the idea that you are accused of doing wrong. You're accused of doing wrong. And that is precisely what early Christians faced. They were accused of doing wrong because they didn't kind of uphold the gods of the city or the gods of the community or the gods of the empire. That's, that was what was at stake. So you lived in, I don't know, Corinth, let's say Corinth. You lived in Corinth and there was the gods of Corinth. Level one, everybody followed the gods of Corinth. Everybody valued the gods of Corinth. Everybody paid tribute to the gods of Corinth. Beyond that, there were the gods that were associated with the empire. Beyond that, you could do what you liked. And everybody did. So you would pay tribute to the gods of Corinth. You would recognize the gods of the empire. And then you might have a shrine in your own house to the gods of whatever it might be. And now what he's saying is this. Now listen. Your association means this. All of those other gods have gone. Because you have come to believe in the one true God. And that is your only affiliation. Now as soon as you say that, in the ancient world, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. Because the, the kind of security of Corinth came from the fact that everybody kind of was in there with the one God that was protecting them. And if Corinth started to decline, and if there was trouble, then it's because of you over there, you guys who aren't recognizing the God of Corinth. 
get on board, don't care about your Jesus, you can do that in your own space. But get on board with us, our, our God here. And therefore, as soon as you say, look, actually, I, I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. As soon as that happens, you're going to be accused of doing wrong. You're not allowed <laughs> to say, I absolutely only believe in one. I, I have a right, surely, to only believe in one God. The implications of which are this, that, and the other, but that's what I believe. It's written into the Constitution of the United States. It's a concept which, of religious freedom which is written into the U UN Declaration of Human Rights. And yet I would suggest that it is the declaration that is most at threat in our society today to say that I believe in just this one. Because actually we live in a world now which says you can't, you can't say just one. That's just intolerant to say just one. It, what real tolerance is, is, is when we can say, well, you can have that, but you've got to accept all of the others as well. That, to me, is not tolerance. There's a redefinition of tolerance. Tolerance is actually, I believe absolutely in your right to believe, to say something very, very different to what I believe. I will fight for your right to believe that, but as long as we have the freedom to say what I believe. We're living in a world which is losing that kind of understanding of a tolerant world. It was actually the Christian faith which introduced the idea of plurality to the Roman world. And then sadly, as soon as it became the language, the uh, religion of the empire, it suddenly gained power and it became, became the imposed power on everybody else. That's, that's the problem of humanity. But right at the very core, we said, we need the freedom to believe what we believe. And so the Christian believers here were under real pressure because they are going to be accused of doing wrong. And what Peter says is, you live in such a way that you create a conflict in other people's minds. You live in this way, that though they might accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Do you see that? The conflict from inside, once that's resolved, results in conflict outside. In other words, he's saying this. Effectively, there is no law against doing good. But rather, the change that has gone, in, gone on inside of you, which has released you from selfishness, becomes the very energy to be selflessness outside of yourself and your own so that you are now empowered to live good lives where your works and your life are just so contradictory. You know, if you're, do if you're doing wrong, then surely you're a bad person. 
And, and Peter says, just live the kind of life which creates a conflict in people's minds where they say, look, I just don't agree with what you say, but when I look at what you do, I, I just don't know what to do with you. Because you, you, you live good lives. Why? What's the, what is the energy of the good life? The energy is the stripping of selfishness and the honoring of Jesus in our lives. As soon as that He becomes our point of worship, we are freed and liberated to do good. It's been uh, kind of wrongly attributed, arguably wrongly attributed, to Francis of Assisi, a saying which is it, it's used in all sorts of ways which can be unhelpful, but it has some relevance to this preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. In other words, what Peter is suggesting here is that our very lives should be a witness and a testimony to the gospel inside of me. What I am inside is who I am outwardly. I live that life because of the change that has gone on inside of me. And that creates havoc. Now, where Francis of Assisi, or whoever said it in the first place, kind of misses something, is there's conflict there already, isn't there? They're already accusing you of doing wrong. Well, you've already, you've already made some kind of declaration of who I am in words, which is the foundation of the fact that you then go and live it out in a life which is so spectacularly selfless that it proclaims the gospel. I guess the problem that we very often have, and the problem that you might have with Christians is that we failed, really, to get to grips with that verse. Where we've, we've kind of, we do plenty of declaration and very little in terms of living. Where we've got it completely askew. That is a confession of our failing. But do not let that be a barrier to you understanding and engaging more with the message of Jesus. Because that's what we are called to do. Henry Nouwen wrote a book, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's based on Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal. And the, the prodigal is kneeling down at the feet of the father and he is in a disheveled state. And the father has his hands on his son's shoulders. And, and now and reflects on this book, on, on this painting, and he, he recognizes himself in the son, the younger son who's gone off all over the place and he's behaved in such a, uh, a, an abominable way and yet he comes back, he recognizes himself in that. And then partway through he starts to reflect on the older son who stood at the side, who's looking on in, in kind of disdain at this younger son who's knelt down in, in a complete mess in front of the father and he says, actually... When I think about it, I am 
probably more like the older son. I'm kind of probably more that kind of arrogant, um, judgmental, pharisaical kind of mindset. And then he says, but hang on a sec, where am I actually supposed to end up? You know, it's really easy for us to stay as either the younger son or the older brother. But actually, we're called to be like the father. That's where our destiny is to be. To be those who live like the Father with compassionate goodness. Because that's what we've already heard in this letter. Be holy for I am holy, God says. Be like this. Be a fatherly figure. Be uh, a paternal, a maternal figure. Be, and I love the way now one reflects on that painting where there is, is a masculine hand and a feminine hand on the hands of the Father. And he reflect, reflects that that actually God is described in this incredible way of being a motherly, caring, uh, compassionate uh, nurse to her children. And then at the same time, God is a valiant, courageous protector. And all of that kind of intermingled beauty of what we are called to be. What we are called to be. What is the outcome? The outcome is quite simply glory to God. They'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits with us. What does that mean? Some have suggested it's on the last day, the final judgment. But actually, in the original language, there isn't the definite article, or, or to put it another way, it doesn't say the day. It, it kind of implies days. The potential that there's many days where God might visit. There's a moment in time, as has happened to these readers, where God has broken into their life by the power of the Holy Spirit and the recognition of Jesus, and they have been compelled. And that is a visiting of God and to His glory. In other words, Peter is suggesting, live such lives that are a conflict in people's minds, you might say one thing, you might claim certain things like absolute, oh, there is one way to the Father in heaven through Jesus. That is just a, a kind of an outrageous thing to say. But on the other hand, if you live this way, there is the potential that your lives might be such a conflict that through that God might visit and bring hope and faith and life to people through that. 2015, these two verses, by God's grace, could be some of the most significant things that we could respond to and live our lives in radically reshaped lives where we become more like the father figure and less like the young son or the older brother. We become stripped of our selfishness to live selflessness.